Well, good morning, and it's a joy to be with each of you this morning and have the privilege to share in God's Word together. If you would uh, bow with me, we're going to pray once more as we come to God's Word and ask Him for His help and to give understanding. So let's pray together. Our Father, just as we sing to you and to one another, we come asking, pleading that you would speak. God, speak to us now through your word. We come hungry, ready to be fed. You tell us not to live by bread alone but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so, Lord, we, we come ready to be fed. So feed us, Lord, as we hold fast to your promises. Fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, it's possible that you've seen a TV series on them before. Or perhaps you know somebody who knows somebody who knows one of them. Or maybe you are just one of them yourself. What is a prepper? Well, preppers are those who have a special knack for preparing. Oftentimes, it's preparing for the worst possible outcomes. So for some, it becomes a borderline obsession even. Now, don't get me wrong. There is certainly wisdom in being a prepared individual. Life throws at us some extraordinarily strange circumstances. We often get met with curveballs. I mean, that's why we have life jackets. That's why we have locks on our doors. That's why we have insurance policies. But some preppers, well, they get fixated on maybe even an imaginative doomsday event, like a zombie apocalypse, for example. And they start to acquire all sorts of goods, massive amounts of ammunition, guns, Rifles, explosives, gas masks, even that dried-up astronaut food that is very horrible. And we might look at that kind of prepper and sort of slightly feel bad for them, right? They just wasted a whole lot of money on a whole lot of resources that they're probably never going to use. But this morning, I want us to consider the only thing that Jesus commands his disciples to be prepared for. And this one, far from sort of being a laughable fantasy, or even preparing for some earthly event in wisdom, Jesus is going to speak to an ultimate reality. What our whole life should be oriented towards. Our entire vision of the good life informed by. 
preparing for the day of his return. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is where we'll be this morning, and we're going to continue our series in kingdom parables. We'll be in the book of Matthew this morning, and as a parable, we've, we've mentioned this before, uh, we've mentioned this in the past, the, a parable is sort of simply this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus is going to use parables to continue to teach his disciples about realities of his heavenly kingdom and what it will be like. Now, we find ourselves in the book of Matthew, really in the last days of Jesus's ministry, where he's sort of alluded to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as he's right there with his disciples. And so his disciples, we know on the other side of history that that event happens in AD 70. But his disciples in the moment have no idea when this is going to happen. And so they come to Jesus and they have a couple of questions for him. The two questions that they ask when he alludes to the destruction of the temple, they ask, what will be the sign of these things? Question one. Question two, well, when will the end of the age be? Okay, and so Jesus has taken up this time to address those two questions with his disciples in chapter 23 and 24, and he's already answered that second question of, when will the end of the age be? And he's answered very plainly, nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or the hour, only the Father. And Jesus sort of goes on to say, since you don't know, you must be ready. Right? He, he doesn't say, because you don't know, just sort of go and live however you want to live and just sort of bank on, you know, the Father's going to come back at some point and all will be good. No, he says, you don't know when the Father will return, but you must be ready. Spend your time waiting, readying yourselves for the Lord's Return. And so to drive this point home, Jesus strings together this list of three parables, just hammering this point that no one knows when the Lord will return, but you must be ready for his return. And so we pick up in our second parable this morning, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. I'll read all of this together. Verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, 
since it will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Well, the main idea that I think Jesus intends for us to take away from this parable is, is, is very simple. We must be ready for Jesus' return. We must be ready for Jesus' return. And we'll break that down into three supporting points. The, the first one being this. You must be ready even if the wait seems long. You must be ready even if the wait seems long. Verse 1, Jesus begins saying, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So the very first word of our passage then is, is actually linking us back to the previous parable that he just told. It, it's referring actually to the time of the masters coming at the last parable, which was sort of the climax of the last parable. So this whole thing is talking about what the master's coming is going to be like. In, in other words, Jesus is speaking about a future reality. He's going to say, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. So he's speaking about a future reality of the kingdom and what it's going to be like. And he introduces 10 characters, 10 virgins who take their own lamps to go out to meet the bridegroom at a wedding ceremony. Now, this word translated as virgins here, it, it might raise a few questions for us as maybe unfamiliar with the customs of that day. Is Jesus, for example, we may wonder, is he telling the story of a man marrying multiple women? That might be a question that we have. Well, that's not what's happening here. This word translated virgins, it's, it's actually synonymous with um, woman of a marriable age, right? So probably the closest thing in our present day to what's happening here, you can sort of think of these 10 uh, maidens as uh, bridesmaids in a wedding. So you have sort of this common custom of, of friends of the bride who are going to be involved in this wedding ceremony. Now, the bride herself, she's an implied character. Uh, she's an implied character in the story, but Jesus doesn't highlight her for whatever reason. But from the very start of the story, we see and we get a strong indication of what we really need to be looking out for in the story. Look at verse 2. Jesus is just going to come right out and say it. Five of the virgins were wise. Five of them were foolish. So he gives us this big clue sort of right away before the story begins as to why he's telling us this story. 
Ultimately, Jesus is telling us a story because he's saying to us, I want my disciples to live wisely. I want my disciples to live wisely. I don't want you to be foolish. That, that's the point of the parable. Jesus is going to go on and sort of unpack then what it means to live wisely in the kingdom of God. Verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So the setting here is, is likely after the formal ceremony of a wedding. It was common to celebrate uh, and, and to begin that celebration often of a wedding at the father of the bride's house. Okay, and in that day, that, that's where the celebration would begin. That would be where the formal uh, ceremony would take place oftentimes. But then the, the party, the festivities, those would sort of continue on, and they would continue on through the rest of the day, and then night would begin to draw on, the, the, the daylight would go away, and then uh, you have the wedding party as the party continues, they would be responsible to bring lamps and to bring lighting to help the wedding party, to help the bride and groom make their way then to the groom's house, where the party would sort of continue in that day. Now, these lamps that are mentioned were, were either oil lamps or, or even torches, both of them fueled by the same thing, by olive oil. But if there was no fuel for the lamps, there would be no light to give off. Or at the very least, the, the lamp would only last for a very brief moment and then go out. And so this need for the virgins, for the maidens to have oil for their lamps, it, it really would have required a good deal of prior planning you would have needed to go to the store to purchase oil, which actually would have been quite expensive. And it would have taken time then through the day to fill the supply, whether that be in the oil of a lamp or whether that be to douse one's torch with oil so that way it's ready to burn through the night. Well, Jesus' point here is he's drawing this contrast between two groups. One group of five, that's failed to prepare. The other group of five who were faithful in preparation. They acted wisely. Well, verse 5 continues the story and we get another detail. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. So the story unfolds and a plot twist takes place as the bridegroom is delayed. He's held back. We aren't told for what reason, but the bridegroom is delayed and all of the maiden fall asleep. Now, this detail, we might just sort of skim over and think this is just simply another detail that's sort of making the story come more alive to us. But I think if we read this parable more wisely and read it in its full context, this delay is actually something really important for us to dig into. Now, how can I say that? 
I, I can't just sort of make that up out of thin air and say, oh, this is a really important detail because I said so. Well, we need to read in its full context. The parable before this introduces a delay. Same theme. The parable after this, there is a delay. Same theme. This theme is being repeated, and Jesus is trying to clue his disciples into this reality that there will be a delay in his coming. This delay in every story is purposeful because through the delay in the parable, each group is given an opportunity for the faithful to demonstrate their faithfulness and for the unfaithful to prove themselves in that manner as well. And in truth, that detail of delay not only serves the purpose of Jesus' parable, but the delay of Jesus' actual return serves the purpose in our lives today as well. The length of time between the ascension of Jesus into heaven after his resurrection and when he will return can feel in our own experience like a long delay. And in the length of that delay, as we live, as we seek to be faithful, we can, as Christians, fall into one of two dangers. We can either start to doubt His return, to doubt His word, to doubt His promises. We can also get distracted as time draws on. We wonder, when will He come back? Is He going to come back? Centuries have come and gone. I don't see Jesus yet. Am I just kind of part of this big group that got duped into thinking that Jesus really is going to come back? Have you ever had those thoughts before? Maybe if it's not those thoughts of doubting, you're tempted to get distracted. Maybe you're here and you're a believer this morning and you started your race well. You're excited about studying the Bible. You're excited and joyful about sharing the gospel. You reveled in the idea of joyfully sacrificing your time and your money and your talents for Christian ministry. You're ready to spend and be spent for the sake of the glory of God and His gospel. You didn't want to waste the one life that God gave you. But over time, you start to get comfortable. Start to settle in. Soon enough, hospitality feels more like a burden than it does a joy. Sharing the gospel, not something that you think about very much. Maybe you think more about your retirement plan than you do giving generously to the church. 
the commitment to living in community gets brushed aside by other interests. In the midst of the delay, there's a constant danger to either doubt or become distracted. And we can so quickly, so easily lose the eternal perspective that was once so clear in front of us, so vivid before our eyes, where we so clearly longed to see Jesus face to face. But the passage that we read earlier is a sobering reminder. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some would count slowness, but is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away. Heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter, why are you telling us this? Verse 11, since all these things are thus, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and of godliness? Friends, don't forget that God has His own timing. A thousand years is as a day with our God. He is not slow. He's working and timing everything out exactly how He has purposed it. And in light of these things, in light of this truth, we must be people of holiness and godliness. Well, have you ever considered that one of the best things that you can do for your Christian walk is to meditate on the return of Jesus? One of the best things you can do for your Christian walk today is to meditate on Jesus' return. Y'all, it's in that very hope that we are actually made more like Jesus, as, as we hope in the return, as we meditate on His return, it actually makes us more ready for His return. It makes us more like Him. So in the midst of the delay, resist the temptation to doubt. Fight against the temptation to grow distracted and instead dream. Dream of Christ's return. Set your eyes, set your gaze there. Listen to these words from Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions. I think they're instructive for us. He wrote this, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And then again, resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I think that I should if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. 
y'all, how would our lives look different this week? If you resolved to do nothing that you would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of your life. How would your week look different if you endeavored to act as you think that you should? If you had already seen the joys of heaven in the torments of hell? Well, even though the delay seems long, let us be ready. Secondly, we must be ready even though the delay seems long, but secondly, you must be ready because no one can be ready for you. Though all the maidens became drowsy and slept, only some were prepared for the return. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here, here is the bridegroom. Come, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. This sort of sudden detail has a dramatic effect. And Jesus is showing us just how unexpected his return will be. It's midnight the darkest hour of the night, and a cry rings out in the midst of the silence, Behold, the bridegroom is here. Like glass shattering in the middle of the night of an empty house. Surprise comes over the maidens, and for some, that surprise gives way to delight. For others, the surprise is going to give way to dread. The five without oil know fully that they are unprepared. They knew that when they arrived, but now the the moment of their neglect is being highlighted and demonstrated all the more, and hence their desperate request. They ask the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answer saying, well, there will not be enough for us and for you to go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, I don't think we should read into this parable too much. So I don't think that we need to wonder if Jesus is sort of establishing the Christian doctrine of selfishness here, right? That's not what he's highlighting. He's not commending the wise virgins for their lack of sharing the oil with the foolish virgins. But this is a detail in the story that instead it's really highlighting this reality that when the end comes, no one will stand before the Lord who is not ready. When the end comes, no one will stand before the Lord who is not ready. In other words, you must be ready for the end because nobody can be ready for you. Well, I wonder if you know that truth this morning. Kids in the pews, this is massively important for you to understand. 
You know, when I was a kid, I made the mistake of thinking that because my mom and my dad professed to be Christians, because I was raised in a Christian home, because I was taken to church most Sundays, because I went to a Christian school, because I had friends who said that they were Christians, that God and I, we were good. But listen, while all those things are indeed good things for your life, none of those will help you when you stand before the throne of God and you give an account for your very life. And the rest of us need to hear this as well. The way we grow up, it matters. The nurturing we received as we mature, it matters. Environment matters. The people around us who influence our lives for good or evil matters. Nevertheless, when it comes to standing before the Lord on the last day, none of those things will erase the fact that you stand before the Lord accountable to Him. Accountable for what you yourself have done. Rich and poor, kings and servants, white-collar, blue-collar, men, women, black, white, Asian, Latino, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account for what we have done. No matter your upbringing, no matter if your dad was in the home or if he wasn't, no matter if you were public school or private school, no matter if you lived a privileged life or absent of such, we will all give an answer to the Lord. Well, how then do we ready ourselves to meet him? A well-known preacher in the 1800s told the story of a poor beggar who was well-known in the town, was known as the town beggar, but he was approached by a master painter. And the painter asked him if he would pose for a new work that he wished to start. Well, the beggar, of course, was honored and agreed to pose for the painting. He was ecstatic. But as the day went on, this beggar started to have doubts. Thoughts began to run through his head. Well, how can I show up for this appointment tomorrow in these dirty and grimy and and dingy clothes? Got to clean myself up. Got to find some new clothes. I've got to get washed up and be ready for my time to pose in this painting. Well, finally, after searching and for begging for clothes and finding a place to clean himself up, he arrives at the master painter's house the next day, hoping that the artist would be pleased with what he found. Well, the artist faces his face fell. He opened the door. 
disappointed. He was grieved. And he explained to the poor man that he needed him to pose in his portrait as he truly was, as a beggar. Well, friends, it's no different in being made ready for the kingdom of God. We need to come to the master artist, to the Lord himself, and to pose as we truly are. We're beggars in rags. We have nothing to bring to the table to contribute to our salvation except for our sin. That's all that we bring. We bring our sin to the table and the Lord promises to cleanse us. This is the way that we ready ourselves to meet the Lord. We don't stand having confidence in our own goodness. We don't bathe ourselves up with niceties and puff our chest because of our good track record. No, we come as humble beggars before the Lord at the beginning of our Christian life and we come as humble beggars before the Lord at the end of our Christian life. True growth in the Christian life is growing in recognizing our sheer dependence upon God. That's what growth in the Christian life is. It's recognizing that He is our only hope when we stand before the Lord on the last day. John Bunyan, his own testimony, wrote of this very experience. After being tormented for days and weeks and months of his own imperfections, his consistently falling short of God's commands and having his conscience afflict him day and night, he wrote this of his testimony. He said, one day as I was passing into the field, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought that I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness. For it was standing there before Him. I also saw that was not my good feelings that made my righteousness better, nor my bad feelings make my righteousness worse. But my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, indeed, the chains fell off my legs. I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations also fled away so that from that time forward, though dreadful scriptures terrified me no more. Now, I went home rejoicing because of the grace and the love and the kindness of God. Y'all, Jesus Christ is your only hope to stand before the judgment seat 
of God. And praise be to God that He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. He is our confidence. Well, third and lastly, you must be ready before it's too late. You must be ready before it's too late. Verse 10, Jesus continues, And while the ones without oil were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Well, the foolish maidens decided to take the advice of the five wise ones. They rush into town to buy, but even as they hurry, it's not fast enough. It's like showing up to the airport 10 minutes before your flight boards and the TSA line is out the door. The virgins were foolish. They didn't prepare adequately. As they waited in line to buy oil, the time of opportunity comes and goes. The bridegroom's arrival has come, and only those who are ready are able to enter, and the door is shut. No one else goes in. No one else is coming out. The dividing lines are fixed. The separation set. The game clock is at zero. Nonetheless, you still tragically see the desires of these other maiden to enter. They come to the door, they knock on the door, they ask and they beg, Lord, would you open to us? But what does he answer? I do not know you. Don't miss those words here. He doesn't say, well, I did know you, but now, well, since you've been negligent, since you've sort of struggled in this life, since you've had this many numbers of sin in your life, I just can't take you in. No, he says, I don't know you. I never knew you. So hear this clearly. This story, this parable, it's, it's not here to be a sledgehammer for weak Christians who are struggling with doubts or entangled with sin. Jesus says, I never knew you, to those who never came to him, to those who wholesale turned away from them, to those who lived a life patterned in sin without repenting, to those who lived in a hypocritical manner without ever turning away. That's very different from a struggling Christian who's clinging to the Lord as their hope, 
who's going to the Lord repeatedly for pardon, who's praying constantly for His grace. Nonetheless, we all need to hear this warning, that we must persevere to the end. True believers persevere to the end. If we profess to be a child of God and then we go out and live like children of the devil, there is no assurance that the Scriptures give us that we will be accepted into the wedding feast. Instead, those who are prepared for the wedding feast are those who truly know God. Those who know God are those who are prepared for the wedding feast. Not simply those who sort of know something about God, whose relationship with God is sort of only like a relationship on Facebook, where you sort of see from afar and you sort of kind of know certain things about a person, but you never actually truly know that person. The joy of the wedding feast is for those who know Him, who know Jesus. Well, do you know Him? Do you know the Lord? Do you know God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, enjoying the fellowship of the Spirit in the triune God, do you know Him? Do you speak with Him? Do you speak of Him? Do you hear His voice to you through His Word? Do you commune with Him regularly? You see, avoiding sin or just not doing the really bad things that everybody sees and judges you about, sure, Christians should avoid those things. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means for us to be a Christian is to walk with God. To know God. To be with Him. To enjoy Him. To be like Him. To know Him. Well, what about you? Do you know Him? That's different from the question of, do you believe in God? It's different from the question of, have you been baptized? It's different from the question of, have you made a profession of faith in your life before? Do you know God? Well, if you don't, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Don't wait any longer. Don't linger in your sins. Don't wait for some sign from the Lord. This is His sign to you. That you would be here right now in hearing this message of God calling you to be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. Don't wait to get yourself cleaned up. He will cleanse you. Don't wait until you hit all the things on your bucket list because Jesus is better, y'all. Don't wait until you're older. 
Because this could be your last day. Come to Christ. Come to enjoy and know communion with Him. Trust in Jesus who bled for sinners like you and like me so that we don't have to face God's judgment. Y'all, today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Him and you hear His voice today, do not harden your hearts. Well, we must be ready even if the wait seems long. We must be ready because nobody can do it for us. And y'all, we must be ready before it's too late. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us now. Grant us the grace needed to ready ourselves before you, to have an eternal mindset, to have our eyes fixed on that last day where you will draw us home. And may the joy that's set before us strengthen us for the obedience that you call us to today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.